following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. We are so grateful to uh, have with us today four guests who will be speaking to us on this important and hopefully challenging topic of how the church participates in both healing and harm and uh, in uh, mental and physical health issues. And so I wanted to begin with just inviting our four guests up to the table here. I'm looking around. So thank you again to each of you for coming and blessing our community with this discussion today. This is, as I said, the third uh, the third uh, Sunday in a series of uh, discussion on um, uh, mental health and uh, physical health and the way the church participates in that. So I wanted to introduce our guests to us all today. Uh, starting with my left, we have Warren, Party, Warren Potter. He is a um, guest of Lifetime Assistant Communities. We have Cheryl Martin. She's the Director of Mental Health Care Coordination Services. No, you will, you will all introduce yourselves and do a better job than I'm doing. So I'm just going to say your names. We have Ron Nutt and we have uh, Jensen Caraballo. So I'll let them all introduce themselves. But let's give a round of applause to them. Okay, so can everybody hear me pretty good? Yeah. My name is Marielle Jensen Battaglia. Jensen's a pretty awesome name this morning, apparently. <laughs> um, and I have been a part of the past couple of weeks this sermon series. If you've missed it, it, listen to the podcast. It's been really wonderful. We've been talking about the different ways that the church interacts with people going through mental and physical healing, and those folks who are living with more chronic and long-term versions of mental and physical impairments that, that may not respond in the same type of healing that we traditionally think of, a broken arm that gets better tomorrow, etc. Well, that would be a wonderful broken arm, but that gets better in a short period of time. Um, and this morning, we're, we're going to have this panel discussion, and we have just some wonderful perspectives from around the community, so I would like to start with Jensen on this end, just talking a little bit about um, himself and what it is about himself that makes him interested in this topic. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Jensen Carabello. Um I serve on the board of directors at the Center for Disability Rights as the vice chairman. I am an activist for disability rights. I engage in nonviolent protests um, several times a year, locally and nationally, um, with a group of activists um, with disabilities called ADAPT. Um, we fight for independence, civil rights, and freedom of all people with disabilities. Let's move on to Rod. Good morning. Everybody hear me okay? You can pick that right up and put it okay, right against your chin. <clears throat> Okay, hear me? Uh, my name is Ron Knott. I am the peer recovery coach with Rochester Regional uh, Health Care System, and uh, I have founded uh, Project Light Volunteer Program 
uh, we recruit volunteers from advanced recovery groups and chemical dependency services and bring them into early recovery groups and do other various roles. Uh, I've been with uh, the healthcare system for 24 and a half years, 20 of which I've worked with uh, uh, drug and alcohol dependent uh, people. I myself am a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober a little over 34 years. I had a, a long uh, standing history of abuse as a youngster. Uh, I disappeared into darkness for quite a few years and I came into the light back in 1980. Um, I do have an interest in this community, um, particularly through my job. Um, I do over 200 individual sessions a year with individuals with all kinds of problems, um, challenges in their lives. And I attend over 200 groups a year in the healthcare system, uh, sharing my insights and uh, helping people. Can you hear me? Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Um, I am Cheryl Martin. Um, When I was thinking about how I got into this space so long ago, I can remember a very young girl around eight years old getting this lovely book from her grandmother in England and looking at it and this story about nursing, and I thought, you know, I'm going to be a nurse. And I don't even remember what it was about the book or why I made that decision. But the next thing I knew, that was my goal and that was the journey that I took. So I really came into the whole field of behavioral health from the nursing field. Now I am the integrated health trainer and clinical consultant. That's what they do with old people. They think we have something of value to share, so they give us the consulting and the training roles. Um, For the Office of Mental Health and for CCSI, um, I don't know how many of you know coordinated care services, but that's what I do. And that's how I got there. Let's hear from Warren. Yep, it's your turn. Uh, I died it. I died it. Off at UCP, United Cerebral Party, at the age of two years, two years old. And from, and when I got out of, when I got, when I finally got out of there, I graduated from there. I enrolled in number five, number five, public school number five in the city, which is near Coda Park on Plymouth Avenue. And, and still, I, I, went there, I went there till I was 16 years old. And uh, at, at the time, I lived in the around the court, which is which is a, a suburb of Rochester, so I didn't go to high school per se because only only kids that lived in the city city went to high school. Well, I got my I got the rest of my education. At home, and I got, and uh, I 
when I uh, well I want let's say I want I want a carlet carlet later and she say with with for the ad with for the other time the only college in it in Henrietta yeah and she would it in the town of Henrietta and it, it was the only it was the only it, it was the only college at the time taking disabled people and not, there not there were not many people people there ah uh, I let him. All of this came about. All of this education came about because of what's known as public public law five or four. Is anybody familiar with that? With and a couple of yeses on public law five oh four it gave uh, it gave and uh, before five oh before five oh four we didn't have much of a choice and public law five oh four changed all of that. Warren? Uh, would it be okay for me to ask Chris to talk a little bit about how he knows you? Is that okay? Mario's asking if I can talk a little bit about how I know you, Warren. Um, how I know you? Oh, well, I was hospitalized, but I was hospitalized for pneumonia, and I knew, and and a little bit after that, I I went to one. One do the apartment uh, group home out in Warren, a, a couple and of I, people. I met this man. I understand. Warren is very articulate. I work with people who have trouble talking a lot, but not everyone may have heard everything that he said. So I'm going to have Chris just talk about how he knows Warren and just summarize real briefly what Warren said. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Sullivan. Uh, I work with Lifetime Assistance, uh, which is um, a care facility for people with uh, developmental disabilities. And so um, I work out in a group home in Greece, and Warren lives at this group home. Uh, And we both started at the group home around the same time in, what, I think, September. Uh, So he and I have been together for, uh, well, since then. yeah, and Warren is just, he's a really, really smart dude. I realized this when <laughs> he started giving me the etymology of words and the history behind a lot of stuff. He's very articulate and, um, I guess, perceptive. Like, Warren is a very perceptive person, so uh, we spend a lot of time talking about politics, religion, uh, and all the gray area in between. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome.
Okay, we're going to move on to our second question, starting with Jensen, which is, what is one thing you would like... Oh, I'm, I'm using my theater voice. Uh, we're moving on to our second question, starting with Jensen, which is, what is one thing you would like the audience to know about individuals with disabilities or with mental illness? So there are many misconceptions and stereotypes about people with disabilities. People will often look at me and say things like, I'm sorry you're stuck in that wheelchair, or I feel bad for you. The truth is, my wheelchair gives me the freedom and the independence to go where I want. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. There's nothing to be sorry about. I am who I am. This is how I was created. I love my disability. I love who I am. Having a disability does not mean I'm sick. It just means I have to do some things differently. Oh, that was wonderful. Let's move on to Ron. What's one thing you'd like the audience to know about individuals with disabilities or mental illness? Yep, and go ahead and pick up that mic. You can hold it right underneath your chin. I have discovered over the past all many, many years that there are <clears throat> secret prejudices and biases in a lot of folks. Is he talking to me? You can go right Okay. Warren shared with me he had his hearing aids readjusted yesterday, so he right. normally hears quite well, but he's struggling a little. Okay. Um, I think it's really important for the general population to become more understanding and more informed about the feelings and thoughts of people who have disabilities and maybe change views, and sometimes that's hard work. I mean, when I came in here today, I hope you accept me. I'm the only one here with a suit on. <laughs> so, thank you. Go ahead, Cheryl. And again, this is, you know, we have a broad spectrum that we're discussing here, but we are obviously talking about people who have mental health issues as well. Right. Well, the areas that I have worked in for the last 25 years are substance use and mental health. And... Um, I guess the biggest thing for me is that I don't see a line between those who have these issues and myself. Um, they have humbled me. I, I may cry even. <laughs> um, we don't all come to this world with the same advantages. Uh, some of us go through some pretty awful things when we're young, and others have some privilege. And um, yet we seem as adults often to be quite comfortable judging those with illnesses like mental health and uh, substance use. And I'll extend it to even some physical health problems, things like chronic pain and autoimmune diseases, um, all of which we're learning over time are coming from their experiences, partially their genetics partially the things that have happened in their families and in their mother's lives while they were pregnant and afterwards. A lot what happened to them as little children. And uh, I just see this as a continuum. Um, all of us have some personality issues that could be better. Um, all of us have mental health issues that 
could be healthier. All of us have physical issues. It's a continuum over which we all go, depending on where we are in our life and what's going on in, as far as stress around us. So it, I think it's that acceptance. Not in the way that I want to make you like me, ever. But in the way that I love you just the way you are sitting in front of me. If, even if you're using your alcohol every day. Even if you're hurting yourself and self-harming. Even if you're profoundly sad every day. I love you just the way you are. Oh, that was what, uh, what I would like to... What I would like the audience to realize is that disabled people are as normal as you, 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 and you. That that we're no different than anybody else. And I would I would like to see today when we're totally accepted by everybody. Thank you. Now I'm going to choke up. Okay. (laughs) Um, So we are going to move on to our next question, talking about experiences or things that you've witnessed in the community that were very positive and affirming, either for yourself or for the population that you work with. And how about something that was not positive or affirming at all that you witnessed? Go ahead, Jensen. An experience that's that's very positive for me is witnessing all of the activists that come together to support each other in obtaining a common goal. It happens every time we travel for a non-violent protest. People from all over the country will travel thousands of miles just to join our brothers and sisters on these actions. We're like one big family. It's really amazing. I have been to a bunch of businesses and restaurants that aren't accessible. The Americans with Disabilities Act is supposed to protect us from that type of discrimination. But unfortunately, some people just don't comply. I would say that's an, that's an experience not so positive for me. Um, I guess I'd like to echo uh, Jensen's sentiment that when I was younger, I wondered why there wasn't wheelchair access, and it seemed to me like it was common sense, but it wasn't happening, and so I applaud Jensen and everyone um, in that world that needs help like that, that uh, wheelchair access, something simple like that, has become more recognized. I like to see those ramps being built at homes and businesses, you know, uh, restaurants and things like that, so I, I applaud that. Uh, personally, I have witnessed, um, particularly in my job, I work with the really, really rough folks um, directly in the community. Um, but despite that, I see a lot of love and compassion and kindness among people who are really, really challenged with drug and alcohol problems and mental Ill health issues. At the same time, uh, I see the other side of that. Um, I can't communicate some of that to you, but uh, it's very, very... It causes me to reflect on myself and my view of people um, with disabilities. Having lived in a pantry for 18 years uh, has enabled me to um, have compassion with other people. And 
my job is to first live an example and then share that in other ways um, to help influence other people to come along the lines of acceptance uh, of this group of folks. Thanks, Ron. Um, okay, uh, what have I witnessed that excites me? Programs starting to listen to the people they serve. Programs not programming people and treating them, but listening to what they want to do and helping them get to the goal that they have. Unconditional positive regard, whether it's the goal you think they should have or not. And I'm seeing that happen. I see it particularly in the Nurse Family Partnership. How many of you know about Nurse Family Partnership? A couple? Okay. So I better just quickly, if that's all right. Monroe County has these groups of nurses that go and connect with young women who are pregnant for the first time and stay with them during the pregnancy and until the child is two. And um, I am seeing in these nurses this... And I will say to you, having been a nurse 45 years, nurses are trained to tell people how to do things and help them get there and fix them. That's the training that we used to have. Of course, we know it doesn't work. Um, So we're starting to be able to understand something different than that. And they have learned to listen, to accept, and to really support these young women in whatever journey it is they want. That, I think, is one of the hardest things for all of us, is to understand that it isn't our right to make the other person the way we want them or put our goal on them. So um, that's my excitement because I'm seeing that happen. Where am I sad? Um, When people are still not heard, when people are treated disrespectfully, when they go to particularly large bureaucratic kinds of places, um, that is painful. I just say I'm witness through my life in public law, public law 504 changed everything. And Martin Luther, as the late Martin Luther King would say, free at last, free at last, free at last. Chris, could you ask Warren if he wanted to add anything he saw that wasn't very accepting? Warren, what have you seen that hasn't been positive? Positive. What has not been positive? What things have not been positive? Right. Well, total acceptance has not been positive. Not yet. At least not yet. I would like to see... 100% 100% positive change for disabled people like myself in the, in the way of employment. I, I have been I physically disabled people don't have don't have jobs because, because the they had to keep up with the labor force, and employers don't see it that way. I would like, em- I would like employers to 
to realize that. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay, so that might actually be the answer to the next question, but we'll, we'll expound on it a little bit. Our next question is, please discuss one thing you would like to see change in the community for people with disabilities or with mental illness. When I originally wrote this question, I actually put a time frame on it. I said in the next five years, but in discussions we decided that that might be um, a little bit too challenging to answer in some ways, you know. But something that you really wish would happen, even tomorrow, even if it takes longer for it to occur. One thing I would like to see change is for more people with disabilities to be living in their own homes in the community. There are thousands of people with disabilities all over the country who are stuck in nursing facilities. I used to be one of them. I was forced into, a, into an institution when I was 15 years old, and I was trapped there until I was 21. There are many reasons why people end up in these institutions. Some of, the, some of those reasons include a lack of accessible or affordable homes, also a lack of home and community-based services that support people with disabilities to live independently. Wonderful. Go ahead, Ron. And Ron, feel free to make this specific towards the area that you've worked in, you know, something you'd like to see change in that area. Uh, yes, I'd like to see um, an increase in the uh, number of services and the quality of the services uh, for folks with disabilities and mental illness. Um, and, and probably most importantly, I'd like to see a change in perspective on behalf of folks who may not be totally informed or misunderstanding uh, about that. I have to reflect back in my own job, um, families, friends, and relatives of the suffering one uh, is usually where we start. And then we move into the general population. Uh, <clears throat> I think a lot of it is common sense, but there's a lot of folks who unfortunately don't care about that. They've made their mind up. And uh, I think that some lessons we may learn, um, sometimes, I know for me, I'd rather learn the first time around and be an example to somebody else so you don't have to take the same path that I did. Uh, but I think that probably the quality of the services and an increased number of services in our community for folks is really important, probably the most important right now for me. Thank you. And I'm going to expand on that. I would like to see have people have much more support and guidance, but I'd like to see it in their own community versus formal paid-for services. So, you know, what do we need to do to get there? I, I want to hear the voice of the people that have the issues being the strongest voice. I don't want people invited to board meetings and being part of community service groups and then you watch the group meet and that voice is totally silenced by the others. That's what I'd like to see. What I would like to 
what I would like to change. It's I'm in the building. I'm not. Except the, the doorways are not wide enough. All the, all the, all the steps are off. And I would like to see that change for the better. That would be better for all of us. Thank you very much, Warren. Um, that's my, my soapbox, one of them. I'll try not to get up onto it too much. But for people who don't use wheelchairs every day, just imagine if the entrance to the church was six feet off the ground, and then we said, come on in to the service. Right? You wouldn't be able to enter the sanctuary, and it would seem ridiculous that we would ask you to. Um, it wouldn't seem like a special accommodation to you to make a set of steps so that you could walk up into the sanctuary. It's the same thing for people who either use wheelchairs or who have other mobility impairments. You know, It doesn't seem ridiculous to them, and it shouldn't seem ridiculous to, to us as a community to just make it so that, of course, you can get into the building. That's where everyone else can get into. Um, so this has been really wonderful, and everyone kept their answers so nice and concise that we definitely have some time for questions from the audience. So please don't, you know, feel free to ask. Raise your hand. Can be for all the panelists or for one specifically. I'll stand. I wanted to thank all the panelists for all your points of view. They're, they're very uh, welcome and I'm glad to hear them. I have a unique perspective on what you're saying. I am an architect. Um, I deal with these issues on the other side, on the infrastructural side, every day. Um, my firm does a lot of work with the DePaul organization who provides a lot of communities that serve folks with either physical or mental disabilities. Um, so I am from a very intellectual and analytical way aware of what you're going through, but I'm very glad to hear the human sense of what you experience. Um, and I'd like to understand how living in a community like Rochester that has a, a wide range of age of infrastructure, um, how you deal with, say, newer buildings versus older buildings, because obviously there are the Americans with Disabilities Acts and there are these laws now that we react to. Um, but I know some building owners of older facilities either don't want to or are sometimes unable to comply with the law. So I don't know if you've seen uh, parts of town or different areas where, um, I guess from a physical challenge standpoint, things are better or things are worse or you've, you've had experiences with owners who have tried to do the right thing. I'm rambling, but does that make sense? So a little bit more maybe for Jensen and Warren, but talk about accessibility in the community of Rochester. Um, I can talk. Um, so... I think um, when dealing with accessibility, I think there's a lot of um, businesses that would like to become accessible and they just can't because, you know, the building is, is too old or um, it, there's just no way for them to install a ramp or something. Um, I think, you know, that's understandable um, from my point. I mean, I can understand it. If it's not possible, it's just not possible. Um, but I have I have dealt with some owners who very clearly can can make their place accessible, and they just won't do it. They just they make up excuses, and they either say it's too expensive or 
Um, you know, they just can't do it. But I, I make sure I do all my research. I look, I, I try to help them. I, I, you know, I look at prices and things like that. So. So it sounds like a mixture of both positive and negative experiences. Um, Dan, I, I can speak to sort of like the behavioral health part of it. I work with a lot of folks who uh, are coming out of uh, incarceration, you know, prison and jail. Um, finding a job, depending on your record, uh, there is a lot, a lot of um, bias. And there are some justifiable things, like if you've got five larcenies on your record, you're not going to be delivering meals to people in hospitals. That's understandable. But there's still a lot of that secret prejudice and bias with folks that make decisions about a person's future based on their own personal bias. Um, I work directly with that, and I try to help change that. What can I say about accessibility? Well, when employed, when employed, start giving us some of the Think we need like they did. Uh, uh, oh well, I can't. I'm not able to go into it. Thank you. We have another question from the audience. Couple, I'm gonna. Okay. I was just gonna follow up with that. Um, asking Jensen. You said that you've met um, owners who just refuse. Wouldn't there be legal action that could be taken against them? It seems that if they're not following the act, that there would be something legal. But I know that takes a lot of time and money as well. Are there avenues or places that will help you with that? Or like you said, your activist group? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, like I said, I, I'm an activist. Um, you know, I, I like to to look up the law and, and find out, you know, what what can happen. Um, so people who don't comply and can, um, usually, like, with the group that I protest with, um, we'll, we'll go to the place, we'll write them a letter, um, you know, explain to them what we want um, and give them our demands. And then um, if they, you know, if they don't, if they refuse to meet with us, um, We'll call up uh, like the media to get attention and things like that. Hopefully, by the end of the protest, um, they have decided to, um, to you know to do it. But if they don't, they can be sued. Thank you. Hi, I was wondering um, from the behavioral health perspective. I think it's kind of more invisible, and um, a couple of. Uh, panelists have mentioned sort of a change in perspective and I feel like that's an area that I would like you to expand on a little bit what would you like us to understand deeply um, in order to change our perspective because when uh, I think Ron is that your name? Sorry. when Ron mentioned people coming out of incarceration I think people's first response is fear, right? This person has larcenies. We want to give them a chance, but we also don't fully understand. So I, so what I'm really asking is what 
can you frame this for us, especially as Christians, um, how we can respond to people who need a second chance? Are you going to speak, Ron? Go ahead. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. Okay, so I do have some thoughts about this. Number one, we incarcerate more people than anyone in the world. So these are not all bad people that are in jail, um, whatever bad means from your perspective. Um, so that's, that's an issue, isn't it? So we have a perspective that the more you use legal issues to fix people, the better they're going to be. And it's not true. And it doesn't work. So that's one huge issue right there. It's um, our acceptance, as I mentioned before, of, of the fact that we don't all come through this with the same privileges, this life. And those privileges change very early. In fact, we're learning now that stressed moms who live in domestic violence while they're pregnant actually change the wiring of their infant's brain before they're even born. So that humility of getting it, that you may be one of those advantaged people that never had those things, but you also may be one of those people that did. And our tolerance and our ability to accept them and love them as they are and help them move to something different because the brain can always change. It's very plastic. We can make it better. But we can't make it better when we create more fear, anger, rage, violence around it. So it is with love that we will make the difference with people. Fear makes us do not good things as a society and as individuals. You know, it was interesting. I'll give you a, a little piece. And I'm smiling about it because I'm always talking about helicopter parents and how these kids don't have any chance to learn independence. Because I grew up in the era where you were out from age five or six on the streets all day and went home for lunch. They did a, they did a um, study with Canadians. Uh, actually, that's where I'm from originally, so that's why you hear all this social stuff and believing in community. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it is. I'm honest about it. Um, but they did a study and they asked them, so when do you think was the most dangerous time to live in Canada as far as the murder rate and violence? And to a Canadian almost, they said, well, right now. Well, it actually was in the 60s when I was a child. Why do they have that perspective? Tell me. I'm sorry, speak up so I Yes, we have a skewed perspective of our community because all we hear is the thing that is getting the attention because it's bad, right? So we start to believe that every other person we pass is going to do something horrible and we should be afraid. And I believe that that's where the change has to happen. Um, May I tell you one more thing about those adverse childhood events that I talked about? May I do that? So we, I've been doing this whole genetic thing lately and going to science uh, meetings in New York City to understand the brain better. We come wired for um, high risk for certain dependencies, uh, opiates, alcohol, tobacco. They can identify the genes where there's a higher risk. And by the way, they're all different. They aren't the same for opiates as they are for alcohol as they are for tobacco, which is interesting because we've always said an addiction is an addiction. Well, it isn't to the brain. 
Um, so we come wired, and there's up to nine areas. So imagine for me, with me just for a moment, and this may help with some of the humility I get with this, that a young man is born with all nine areas in his brain wired for this opiate addiction. And now we also are wired for pain tolerance. So let's imagine that this same young man has low pain tolerance. That's his wiring. And then let's imagine that he has a lot of adverse childhood events. Violence, neglect, a parent in prison, a parent with a substance use disorder, divorce, you name it, violence in the community. What do you think his odds are of becoming opiate dependent at some time in his life? Compared to me, who, by the way, I've had my genetics done, I had no risk for opiate dependence, high pain tolerance, and very little childhood adverse events. What do you think? And that's where my humility comes. I don't even know if I'd have survived. How could I possibly judge them and how they found their solution to get where they are today and still be with us by my experience? Um, we do have, we have some more questions from the audience, but we also have a really full room of toddlers and young children and some teachers that are probably getting fatigued. Um, so I think what we'll probably do here is we will, I, I'm going to yak for about one minute and then we'll close with prayer. But if our panelists are available to stay for a few minutes after the service, if you're not, that's fine. We could have a little bit more informal Q&A. Um, and I actually think it would be wonderful to have children back into the sanctuary uh, just because if it's been a little bit different or um, new for us to have a couple of wheelchairs in the, in the sanctuary, I think that should not be different or new for our, our children. Um, I don't have children, so maybe I don't get to have that opinion. But I, uh, <laughs> but, but I know that Warren and, and Jensen probably wouldn't mind some questions about that, even from the kids, and that's, I think, really awesome, a, a good way for us to do that. So if this has been a little bit different for the people in the audience, or even the people on the panel, for a church experience, I think that is really good. I think that's really powerful. Maybe it doesn't seem like a traditional church service to have a panel talking about accessibility to buildings and you know how we speak about people who have mental health and substance abuse problems, but I think it should be. This is the place where at least I come to learn how to follow God more thoroughly, learn how to be a better Christian and, and hopefully a better person. And I think this is such a huge part of it. So although it's been different, I hope it's given you some things to think about, and I hope it's opened the door a little bit for us as Artisan Church to start talking about these issues more frequently and more openly. Um, and I just am thankful for everyone that came, especially our panelists. Can we give them a big hand? have Pastor Scott come up and pray for us, and then we'll dismiss the panel and lead into communion. Um, when Cheryl was talking about love and fear, it reminded me of this wonderful verse in the Bible. Most of us have heard the statement from the Bible, God is love. 
And that passage goes on to include these words. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters, are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. And in lieu of making up a prayer, I would just like to say, let those words rest in us, and may it be so, in and among us. And I'd like to invite all who would like to participate in the Sacrament of Communion to do so now. Uh, This morning we have stations at either side here with bread and both wine and juice. And uh, the bread is cubed and you can take a piece of it and remember Christ's body broken for you. You can dip it in the wine or the juice, whatever would be more appropriate, and remember his blood shed for you. Our table at Artisan is an open table. And uh, so you need not be a member of our church to participate in this sacrament with us. You simply need to be trusting Jesus, um, which is uh, actually a pretty low bar. (laughs) Um, But it's at the same time a very high bar, one of the beautiful mysteries of our faith. Um, But if if you're not sure whether you should take communion, I think you probably should. Uh, And we will sing again some more songs and... uh, You can retrieve your children if you haven't done so already. Uh, Our table will be open for the rest of our time this morning, and we may have to help each other with uh, spatial issues as we take communion. Just please be cognizant of that and be willing to help someone who's next to you in line if he or she needs it, okay? Uh, If you don't want to take communion, that's entirely all right as well. We want to make space for for you as well this morning, and you can feel free to sit and and think or meditate or pray, whatever would be comfortable for you, and no one will look sideways at you or criticize you in any way. Um, Respond to what you have heard, however you sense the Spirit of God leading you to do so. Uh, Our table is open. Let's continue to worship Him together. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.